So today is a little different. Kind of normal for me every year after the Christmas season. We go like crazy in December, huh? So I like to take a little one-week break after December. So I have a very special guest with us today. Came all the way from Australia. So welcome, Pastor David, please. I have his notes and also some charts. I'm going to walk down and pass out. It would be great if you could grab some of these and you can follow along. So we got a little different message about prophecy today. So I turn it over. Uh, it's uh, really awesome to be here today. Uh, I've really enjoyed fellowshipping with people from um, this church. And I just want to encourage you to keep on praying for your church because God has opened up many doors of opportunity and Satan is like a lion and he's looking to devour and destroy. So keep praying and stay strong. Don't lose these opportunities for service. Now, as a pastor, one of the things that I want to see happen in people is that they grow to love Jesus more. One of the things that I've found that stops people from growing to love Jesus more is a lack of understanding of the Word, of the Bible. So one of the common areas that people don't understand is prophecy. And you think, well, why worry about prophecy? Well, it concerns Jesus, his first coming, his second coming, the reason he came. And basically, I think of it like this. If you don't know the word, if you don't know about God, then you can't love him. If you don't love him, then you won't have the desire to obey him. You don't have the desire to obey him, then you won't be obeying and therefore you won't be abiding, having that sweet fellowship, walking together in agreement. And then you won't be bearing fruit and bringing glory to God. So prophecy is 25 or 27% of the Bible. It's a big chunk. And I want to lay the foundation for you today. Really simple. And I'm going to give you some tools and you can go forward in your own time and study it for yourself and grow. And so when you read the Bible, it'll be, uh, it'll make more sense and you'll be uh, blessed. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the promise that your Holy Spirit will give us the understanding. Open our hearts, we pray today to receive in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So this is an introduction to prophecy. And firstly, what is prophecy? So if you've got your Bibles, open up to Isaiah 46, and we'll read verses 9 and 10. It says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. So, prophecy, declaring, is God declaring the end from the beginning. He's telling us what's going to happen before it happens, so we will know that he is God. That's really important. Prophecy tells us that there is only one true God, and that is Jesus, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's an application here. We learn through prophecy, God telling us what's going to happen before it happens, that God is outside of time, that God sees everything and knows everything, and that God is in control of everything. 
And this should bring us a lot of comfort. True? Why? Because nothing that happens to us is an accident. God had every detail of Jesus' life all mapped out. Nothing was an accident. And so when things happen to us, the question is, okay, God, how are you going to use this to help me to grow more like you? You understand that there is nothing, no bad things happen to us because what is Romans 8, Romans 8, 28, 29? Everything works for good and the purpose is to conform us into the image of Christ. So just ask yourself that question. If something happens, okay, why is it happening? It's to make me more like Christ. How is that going to work? Now, almost every time God foretells or predicts that something is going to happen, he follows it with the phrase, then they shall know that I am the Lord. And the meaning of that is that God wants people to come into relationship with him. Now, it's going to start with a, a prophecy from the first coming of Christ. Now, there's over 300 prophecies concerning Jesus' first coming. They're very specific. Some specify when, some where, some how, and some why, and some what he would do. So we're just going to look at one. So if you've got your Bibles open to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and that says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. So, which town is the Messiah going to be born in? Bethlehem, right? Did you realize that Jesus did not grow up in Bethlehem? He grew up in Nazareth. So there was a decree and Joseph was born in Bethlehem. So he had to go back to Bethlehem. And it just happened by God incidents, as I call it. (laughs) Not coincidence, but God incidents, that Mary was there just at the right time to give birth to Jesus. Again, if you are going to predict that, you would not be thinking that it would happen in Bethlehem, but God knew. And then the fulfillment is in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, and it simply says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, at the end of the notes, I've got 44 messianic prophecies that you can look up and read for yourself. And you will find that just, or you will experience just how detailed it is. It's really good. So, why did God give us all these details about the, the coming of the Messiah? Well, it's pretty important. We need to know that he is the Messiah, yeah? You don't want to get confused on who's the Messiah. So God made it crystal clear. If you know your Bible, you know that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, one of the prophecies in the scriptures that gives us, is, is I think of it as like the key to unlocking all other prophecies. Some people refer to it as the backbone of biblical prophecy because it shows us where all the other prophecies fit. So especially the first and second comings of Christ, the seven-year tribulation as described in the book of Revelation, and the millennial reign of Christ when Jesus reigns on earth for a thousand years. So in Daniel chapter 9, the context is that Daniel is praying. He was one of the Babylonian uh, captives, so he was born in Israel. He's taken captive by the Babylonians, 
and taken to Babylon. And he was there as a slave, as a captive. And God had predicted, prophesied, uh, foretold that they would only be there for 70 years. In Jeremiah 29.10, you, you can read that. So Daniel, he's an old man now, and he's he's thinking, well, it's almost 70 years. And so he's praying, God, are you going to bring us home? And so he prayed and he was confessing the sins of the nation and of himself. And God sends an angel, Gabriel, to give this message so it's Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. It says, 70 sevens, and, or 70 weeks, and literally in the Hebrew, the weeks or is heptads, the Hebrew word heptads, and it means seven. So we'll explain that more later. So 70 weeks or sevens are determined for your people. Daniel's people is the nation of Israel and for your holy city, which is Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, that is Jerusalem and the temple. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week or seven years. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So, sounds confusing. You're going, what's that talking about? Good question. Let's break it down and have a look. So, start in verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. So, again, determined, decreed, set aside for Israel and Jerusalem. Again, the word weeks in the Hebrew is the word heptad. So, a good way of understanding this is to think of the word doesn't. Okay, how many in one dozen? Twelve, right? How many in two dozen? Bit of maths. Twenty-four. Good. All right. Now a heptad is seven. So if I told you I was going to the shop to buy a heptad of eggs, how many? Seven. If I was going to buy three heptads of eggs, how many? Twenty-one. What about seven heptads of eggs? Forty-nine. Good. You're on to it. Fantastic. What about? 70 times 7. Can you do that? 490 years. Okay, so 70 weeks. 70 times 7 years. 490 years. Now, verse 24 also tells us six things that God is going to accomplish in that 490 year period. So, let's have a look at verse 24. It says 70 weeks or 70 lots of 7 years 
are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression is the first one. What does that mean? Well, it's the end of man's rebellion against God. Jesus will put an end to human government when he returns the second time. Secondly, it says to make an end of sins. And the Hebrew literally means to seal up or restrain sin. So when Jesus returns to this earth and rules and reigns, he will not allow people to get away with evil. He will restrain evil. And you can read Psalm 2. It says he will rule with a rod of iron. And number three, to make reconciliation or atonement for iniquity or sin. So this is a reference to Jesus dying on the cross for the sins of the whole world. Fourthly, to bring in everlasting righteousness. So when Jesus comes back the second time, he is going to bring in everlasting righteousness. He's going to set up a righteous rule to seal up vision and prophecy. Everything that God has said would happen up to that point will be complete, especially concerning Israel and Jesus' second coming. And to anoint the most holy. Some people don't realize that there will be a temple in that thousand-year reign of Jesus where he will rule from, and all the nations will go there to worship year by year. Okay, let's move on to 20, verse 25. It says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troubles and times. Now, there's a simple chart on the online notes, but not the written ones. Basically, it's you got seven, lots of seven years, plus 62, lots of seven years, and they add up to 483 years. So it's from and until. From what? From the decree to restore and build Jerusalem. That's the starting. When that decree happens, and you can read that in Nehemiah, when that happened, the clock started ticking. The timer started counting down. The 490 years started counting down. And exactly 483 years later, another event would happen, which is Messiah, the Prince. Jesus, for the first time, revealed himself as a Messiah when he rode in on the donkey on Palm Sunday, a week before his crucifixion. So, Simply, it's saying that there will be 483 years between the command by the Persian king to rebuild and restore Jerusalem to Jesus coming in on the donkey. And so God is giving us the timing of the appearance of the Messiah. And again, uh, the, oh, one more thing to add there, the, it's broken into two parts, the seven and the 42, because in the first 49 years it says that the rebuilding of Jerusalem and the walls would be in difficult or troublesome times. And it took about that long for those things to happen, the first 49 years. Okay, again, why is this important? Because it tells us exactly when Messiah would be revealed to the nation of Israel. And what did Jesus say? 
to the Pharisees and to the nation of Israel, you did not know the day of your visitation. If they had read their Bibles, they would have known. This is the day spoken of by Daniel. Now, a couple of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled on this day when he rode in on the donkey, Palm Sunday, declaring himself to be the Messiah in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Your king is coming to you, riding on a donkey. So here's another prophecy. He's coming on that particular day and he will be riding on a donkey. Psalm 118 verse 26 says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what the people were saying when Jesus rode in. Again, another fulfilled prophecy. Now, if you want to know how the 483 years is calculated, I don't have time to explain now, but in the back of your notes, uh, it's Sir Richard Anderson. He has done the calculations, and you'll see how it all works out. Now, uh, verse 26, it says, and after the 62 weeks. So we're at the end of the 483 years, and the clock stops, okay? So imagine that, you know, Christian's doing a competition. He's doing how many push-ups can you do in one minute? And then Aaron comes in and says, oops, dinner time, and he's only halfway through his minute. Well, we don't know how many push-ups a Christian can do in one minute because the clock has stopped, right? But later, after dinner, they'll come back and restart the clock and he can finish doing his push-ups. Does that make sense? So there's a gap. There's a pause. So in this pause, in this, with the clock timer stopped, there are two events that God says will happen. So after the 62 weeks or the 483 years, it says that Jesus shall be cut off. It says in verse 26, And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. What does it mean to be cut off? Well, the word translated cut off refers to a criminal receiving the death penalty. Obviously, it's pointing to the crucifixion of Christ. It says the Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And I'm going to come back to what that means at the end as an application. And in the second part of verse 26, this is the second event that Jesus, or God, in through Daniel predicted would happen. And the people of the prince who is to come, and you'll find out later that's the Antichrist, shall destroy the city, Jerusalem, and the sanctuary, meaning the temple. The end of it shall be with a flood, and that's like a picture of war. And a good example is in Jeremiah 46, 7-9, where Egypt comes up as a flood when they attack. The second event is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Now, do you know when that happened? 70 AD, 37 years roughly after Jesus was crucified and rose again. So who was the nation or army or the world empire at the time that destroyed Jerusalem? It was the Romans, and General Titus led the attack in AD 70. So it was the Roman armies 
who destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Jesus said, remember, that not one stone would be left unturned. Guess what? They burnt it, their gold all ran down in between the bricks, and so to get their gold, they had to overturn every single stone. Not an easy job because the stones were very big. So it says there, and this is a little bit confusing, and the prince of the people who is to come. So the people were the Romans, but the prince hasn't come yet. The leader, this ruler, he hasn't come yet. It's his people that did it, but this prince would be a future prince. And so it tells us that we haven't seen him yet. He, And we'll find out more about him um, later on. And basically, he's the Antichrist. So what do we know about Europe today? We have the European Union. That's basically the area, sorry, the area where the Roman Empire was. So the Antichrist would be of European descent. And many consider the European Union as a precursor to what we call the revived Roman Empire. In verse 27 it says, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. So, just to explain this. So, then is when the clock starts again. Okay, the timer starts ticking. It goes down. We've got how many years left? Can you work it out? There's 490 years and we've used up 483. How many years left? Seven years, that's it. Or one week, okay? So then he, and he, going back to verse 26, is the prince who is to come. And he shall confirm a covenant or an agreement with the many. Literally in the Hebrew, it's the many. It's a particular people group. And of course, this prophecy is all about Israel. And how long for? For one heptad, for seven years. So the Antichrist, this prince who is to come, will rise to power out of the revised Roman, the revived Roman Empire. And he will then confirm a peace agreement with Israel for seven years. Again, this is when the last seven years starts ticking down. The clock has started again. Now, this time is called the tribulation. Jesus calls it the tribulation in Matthew twenty-four twenty-one. It says, For then there will be great tribulation, such has not been since the beginning of the world unto this time, no, nor ever shall be. Verse 27 tells us what this antichrist, this false or counterfeit Christ, is going to do halfway through that last seven-year period. It says in verse 27, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, seven years, but in the middle of the week, or three and a half years, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. So basically, the the just due that the Antichrist will receive is given to him. He'll be thrown into the lake of fire. That's the last part of that verse means. Now, if he's going to go into the temple and stop sacrifices, what has to happen first? Well, the temple must be rebuilt. 
So this has not happened yet. This is future. The temple has not been rebuilt. The plans are all done. They have the animals, they have their clothing, they have you know, everything in place. All their articles, the um, bits of furniture, everything is pre-made. I've been over to Israel and seen some of it. It's really interesting. But they can't do it now because of the, the Muslims and the, and, the, and the current situation over there. But one day there will come a ruler and part of that agreement will be to rebuild the temple. And after that, so that'll be part of the seven-year agreement. But in the middle of that, after only three and a half years, the Antichrist will break his promise to protect Israel and he will go into the temple and proclaim himself to be God and then he will attack the nation of Israel. And Revelation has lots to say about this, about how he goes into the temple. Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4, he goes into the temple proclaims himself to be God. And then uh, in Revelation at 13, it talks about him forcing people to worship him as God at this point, halfway through the tribulation. And you probably heard about the mark of the beast. That's at the midpoint of the tribulation. So what happens at the end of the seven years? What event marks the end of this last week or seven years? Well, it's the consummation. It's the end of these things. Jesus comes back with the church. I'll get more into that later. So now, just want to say this. This is the reason why Daniel's 77th prophecy is so important. It gives us the basic framework or timeline which we then use to fit all the other prophetic events into. Without this, many of the other prophecies in the Bible would not make sense. And those who do not have a correct understanding of this prophecy end up confused and come to the wrong conclusion. So after you know the days to come, go back over your notes, have a look and learn this. Now, we go from here to an overview of God's prophetic timeline. So basically, we're in the church age now, and I'm using Revelation as my guide here. So in chapters 2 and 3, we have Revelation, and it's the church age. It's the letters to the seven churches. Then, if you move on to chapters 4 and 5, you have the rapture. It says, come up here, and we see the church in heaven. And then... Following that, we have the seven-year tribulation, which is started when the Antichrist signs that peace agreement with Israel, and that covers Revelation 6 through 18. That finishes when Jesus comes back with his bride, the church, in Revelation 19. And then, in Revelation 20, we have the millennial reign of Jesus on earth. That's the Revelation 21 to 10. And the second half of that chapter, it says, it talks about the great white throne judgment. I'll talk more about that later. And then in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth. So hopefully you can look at that and say, oh, well, Revelation isn't that hard to understand. It's following the chronology of the prophetic events that are going to happen in the future. So I'm just going to go through uh, Revelation really, really quick and just go through those main sections. So... Revelation chapter 1 verse 1, just the first part of the verse, it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. So what's revelation all about? 
Because it's about Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus. He's not a baby in Mary's arms. He's not in the tomb. You know, he has a glorified body and he is ruling in power. He is on the throne. Do you remember what happened to John when he saw the risen glorified Jesus? He fell down at his feet as dead. You have to read that for yourself. Now in chapter 1 verse 19, Revelation chapter 1 verse 19, this gives us the outline to the book of Revelation. It breaks into three parts. So Revelation 1.19 it says, Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. So the things which you have seen is Revelation chapter 1. It's John's vision of the glorified Jesus. The things which are is Revelation chapters 2 and 3. It's the church age. And the things which will take place after this is the rest of the book. It's chapters 4 and through to 22. And it includes the rapture, the tribulation, Jesus' second coming, the millennial reign, the great white throne judgment, and finally the new heavens and the new earth. Now, Revelation chapters 2 and 3, it's the seven letters to the seven churches. I can't go into it today, but you'll get great benefit by studying these chapters. There's a lot of personal application. It's Jesus speaking to his church. So study those carefully for personal growth. The Revelation 4 and 5, it's the rapture and the church in heaven. And Revelation chapter 4 verse 1 is the turning point and the important words are after these things. In the Greek it's metatelta. In chapter 1 verse 19 it says and after these things, yeah? Talking of the next stage, the third division of the book of Revelation. And in chapter 4, verse 1, it says it twice. Meta tells her, after these things. And also in chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus says, come up here. So John is caught up into heaven. And what is that a picture of? Well, the rapture, right? Where the church, the believing church, is taken up to heaven. We're going to meet Christ in the clouds and we will spend eternity with him. Now, I've given you a lot of verses to look up there. Uh, that'll help you to understand that. Now, Revelation 6 through 18 is a seven-year tribulation. Now, these chapters can be difficult to understand. Here's a key that I think will help you to understand them better. Some of the chapters are chronological, which means they carry the story forward, and some of the chapters are what I call, or people call vignettes, short stories which describe who the important um, players or people, events are in the tribulation. So in chapter 6 you have the seven trumpet judgments. In chapter 6 you have the seven seal judgments. In chapters 8 and 9 the seven trumpet judgments. And chapter 16 the seven bowl judgments. And all the other chapters in there 7, 10 through 15, and 7 and 18 are vignettes or brief descriptions that tell us more information about the people, uh, nations, events, and things that are going on that you find in the book of Revelation. So let's move on to chapter 19. Revelation 19 is the second coming of Christ. At his second coming, I'll go back, there's a, at the, I think it's online on Facebook, 
there's a list of uh, divisions in the book of Revelation, chapter by chapter, and that will help you to break it down. It tells you what each chapter is all about, so that'll be quite helpful for you to look at. Revelation 19, the second coming of Christ. Jesus comes back to the earth with the church. He defeats the Antichrist and his armies at the battle of, remember, Armageddon. Yep, so let's read a bit of that. Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe, at his thigh, was written this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Look at verse 14. It says, The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. Who's that talking about? Jesus is coming, and who's following him? It's us. It's the believers. We go up at the rapture. We're in heaven for that seven years, and then we come back with him. After he comes back, he establishes his millennial reign, his thousand-year rule and reign on the earth. And we read about this in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 10. So it's a reign of righteousness. In our world today, most crime, or a lot of crime, is not punished. There's a lot of wickedness, a lot of evil which abounds. That will not be the case in the millennial reign, in the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus on earth. It will be a righteous rule. And the earth will be renovated or made new again, so it will be like the Garden of Eden. It's going to be beautiful. I'm just going to read one one of those verses so you can uh, see what it's talking about. Then I saw thrones, and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. And the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. That's those who died during the tribulation. They had not worshipped the beast. The beast in Revelation is a word which refers to the Antichrist or his statue, nor accepted his mark on their forehead or their hands, the mark of the beast, halfway point of the tribulation. That's uh, started. Then they all came to life again, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years the millennial reign we will come back we will have our glorified bodies we will reign with them with israel and with those who um, the believers who died in during the tribulation they also will resurrect now we move on to the second half of chapter 20 it's the great white throne judgment this is the final judgment in a series of judgments so all believers sorry all unbelievers from all generations past 
will be resurrected at this point, after the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus. So let's read this in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both small, sorry, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up its dead, and death and the grave gave up their dead. And all were judged according to their deeds. Then death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now we talk about hell. The lake of fire is hell. The book of life, what's that? If your name is in the book of life, it means you have been washed by the blood of Jesus. Your sins have been washed away by the blood of Jesus. You have repented, you have believed for in that Jesus' death on the cross was a full payment for your sins and you have become his child. For those who never repent and believe, your name will not be in the book of life. Your sins will not be covered by the blood of the Lamb. You will not be cleansed and you will be punished for your sin unnecessarily, sadly, because the pardon for your sins was paid or given to you by Jesus. He paid the price, but people don't receive it. Now, verse uh, chapters 21 and 22 is the new heavens and the new earth. So in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, it tells us that God is going to destroy the old heavens and earth and create new ones. And so in Revelation 21 and 22, we see what this new heavens and earth will look like. So I'm just going to read uh, five verses. Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4, and then verse 8. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. Are you looking forward to that? He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. Notice the emphasis on that, on this direct personal relationship with God. Not a long distance one like we're experiencing now. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone for how long? Forever. And verse 8, skipping a few verses. But cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshippers and all liars... Their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur, hell. This is the second death. So I'm going to come back to finish with that 
phrase from Daniel chapter 9, when it says, Jesus was cut off, but not for himself. What does that mean? Well, Jesus is our substitute. God is telling us in advance that the promised deliverer, Jesus, would be the one who would die in the place of sinful humanity, paying the death penalty for the sins of every person ever born. Remember, Jesus lived a perfect life. He didn't need to die. Instead, he died in the place, in my place and in your place. And 1 John 2 verse 2 and 2 Corinthians 5 21 are good verses to read, to learn more about that. And I just want to read another prophecy from Isaiah which helps us really to understand what it means that Jesus was cut off but not for himself. Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried, it was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. So prophecy had everything to do with God's plan of salvation. And the application here, well, every person has to make a choice. You know what's going to happen in the future. You know there's going to be a final judgment. Is your name going to be written in the book of life? If you are prepared to give control of your life over to God, that's another way of saying repent and trust that Jesus' death was a full payment for your and my sins, then you can live with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth. You will become a child of God. So to conclude, I just want to say that prophecy is a gift given to us by God so that we can easily recognize who the Messiah is and understand his mission. Jesus is the promised deliverer who would save us from our sins. And prophecy also shows us that God is outside of time. God sees everything and knows everything. God is in control of everything. Again, are there good and bad things that happen to us? Not really. From God's perspective, everything that happens to us is a good thing. Why? Because the result is that we are conformed into the image of Christ. I have some notes there uh, for further study. I'll let you read that for yourself. Um, I can recommend going through them. But for now, uh, let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, that you have shown us the end from the beginning. Lord, you have revealed to us what was going to happen before it happened. And we can know without a doubt that you are the promised Messiah. Amen.